The Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded Australia's most trusted energy provider by CanStar three times. Maybe it's time you switch to Red. And for Prince Wine Store, Bank Street, South Melbourne and delivering Australia-wide, princewinestore.com.au. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkins. everyone and welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Corey Perkin and I'm joined by my friend Caroline Wilson. We are not together in the studio. In fact, Caro, we're not anywhere near the studio. <laughs> we're not, Corey. It's lovely to talk to you again. It's been a couple of weeks. I've been out of town and you've joined me in beautiful Italy, but we're in different parts of Italy today, aren't we? We are. We had. Uh, I flew in and had a couple of days with you and Trudy and we explored the beautiful Como area and Lake Como district. And now I am in Florence and you are where? I'm in Santa Margherita, Liguria, winging my way down to Florence to meet you again tomorrow afternoon. This has been, I must say, it's been a bit of a trip of a lifetime for me. Um, I've mixed up, I've had a fabulous week with my family in northern Spain. I've had a fabulous week with friends on one of the most beautiful islands in Greece, on the Ionian Sea up north. Uh, Then I joined Trudy, said goodbye to Brendan, and joined Trudy in Lake Como. It's been absolutely stunning. But um, I'm interested that you left us and went to Florence, and you're there for nine days. Yes, I know. That's a long time in the context of a trip. Explain, please. Um, It is. Look, Caro... As you know, uh, the minute I read Still Life by Sarah Winman in, oh, I suppose it was early 2021, it was certainly was before the book came out, I had an advanced copy, I fell in love with the book that um, so many Australian readers and indeed all around the world have taken this book to heart and a large part of the book is set in Florence. And then we went into lockdown, another lockdown in Melbourne and then we closed the bookshop, as everybody knows and has heard that long story. And during that lockdown in 2021, from August to October, I organised uh, a webinar with Sarah Winman, who was in the UK. The book had just come out over there. It had just come out in Australia. We had a great chat. And off air, we were talking about Florence and how much we both loved it. And anyway, we kept in touch. As you know, she and I are now friends. And I just I was, that lockdown, if you remember, we spent so much time, and I'm sure you and I weren't alone, but we spent so much time as Melburnians thinking about where would we go if we could actually escape, where would we go? I mean, for me, Port Ferry was looking pretty good at that point. But um, but I started. I started <laughs> oh, remember, remember little... the attempts to get to Port Ferry? Remember how many times oh. you tried to get there? <laughs> Yeah, for the four the four cancelled trips, but I started a uh, a Florence a Still Life Florence fund, uh, just uh, a little part of the bank account, and pretty much every week, unless I had to dip into it for the gas bill, I saved money, and here I am, <laughs> here I am. I'm in Florence, and I was going to have uh, a couple of weeks here. As is happening, my husband Pete will be joining me later um, in the month. But there was a bit of a pile-on from a few of the gang, including yourself, and people who are either travelling here or friends who just said, yeah, we want to come. So we're going to be a gang of five in a couple of weeks. Well, I think pile-on's a bit cruel, Corrie. You did ask me to come to Florence. 
<laughs> no, we've and we've got some great tips, um, particularly from our friend Julie, sister Ravana from the op shop. I haven't been to Florence. I mean, I've been through it, but I haven't been there and spent time there since I was 25 when I was there with my friend Pixie and had a brilliant holiday. But I'm, I'm so looking forward to seeing it again. Um, it's, I'm sure it's going to be very hot. It's starting to get hot everywhere. This little town, though, of Santa Margarita Liguria by the sea near Portofino is just a spectacular little place. Trudes and I um, went to a, a wonderful villa yesterday, the Villa Giorezzo, and um, looked at some beautiful old things. We photographed a library, Corrie. That I saw just... that, Caro. And it reminded me of what we discussed the other night and that beautiful night when we sat out in our village square and ate that very large and beautiful meal up in the village of Molina in Caimo. And we talked about it's great going to galleries and it's great going to museums and it's great going to beautiful gardens, but there is nothing like these days for me as a tourist going and seeing how somebody else lived 100, 200, 300 years ago. I want to talk about that. I think that's a really good thing for this podcast. To um, it's a way into travel, isn't it? And we will talk about that. Uh, you have a book that you've been enjoying while you've been away, and we both have watched a screen uh, on the aeroplane. <laughs> uh, but we, we we don't think you've talked about it in one of your previous trips. But I was certainly really um, really impacted by this film. So we'll have a chat about that. You have a recipe. But, uh, Caro, a couple of uh, listener feedbacks from our gang. Hi, Caro and Corey. Um, this is from Tracy Wilson. Firstly, thank you so much for your most wonderful podcast. I've been listening to you both for a few years. I feel like you are both part of my friendship group. We have so much in common. Oh, Tracy, we are. Um, hoping to one day get to meet you both at one of your live shows. Love all your recipes, so I decided to put together a booklet for easy reference when I'm cooking. Happy to share this format with you and your listeners. So Miss Jane was telling us about this off-air, Caro. Tracy has put together some of the best recipes, and Jane has now, um, if you contact Jane via feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au, Jane Neal, our wonderful producer, will send you through a copy. Isn't that fantastic? Oh, I, I read it the other day um, when I was doing a bit, you know, doing my usual daily or it's actually become every two days clericals on this wonderful trip. And it made me quite nostalgic. Remember when Ned came in and did his, him and Zoe's pasta recipe, my son Ned? Yes. Um, I hadn't seen that. I sent it off to him and he said, oh, Mum, that's um, a blast from the past. How lovely. There was so many recipes I've forgotten we'd done. Tracy, thank you so much. And what about the correspondence we had from James Sandal Ford's um, great-great-granddaughter, Hilary? Amazing. It was absolutely so lovely to read. She actually talks about the fact that she too, while she's travelling, really enjoys listening to us. But she thanks me for um, mentioning James Ford and his connection to Portsea. So James Sandal Ford um, was indeed the first person to settle ports. He attributed and he named it after his birthplace in England near Portsmouth. Um, he'd been convicted, believe it or not, for machine breaking during the Hampshire um, machine breaking during the Hampshire machine breakers industrial action. He was sentenced to seven years in Van Diemen's land. And she goes on. She was very um he ended up, he's one of the survivors of the Ticonderoga, which we know well, Corrie, mm. the hell ship. We saw the play um, performed by Michael Veach. 
uh, several years ago at the quarantine station. But she just says thank you to me for mentioning, James. And she also wants to say that for the past six weeks, she's been holidaying in sunny Scotland, warm Wales and lovely London. And um, she's been listening to us all the way around Britain. So I thought that was really, really lovely. Sorry about my slightly stilted reading. I'm sitting here in early morning in semi-darkness. Our friend Trudy is asleep across the room and I'm feeling very mean about waking her up. Well, one thing about Trudy, she won't have to tune into the podcast this week because she's hearing one side of it. She told me she's <laughs> um, going to give me. She told me she's going to give us a review at the end of it. She's got earplugs <laughs> in, but I don't think they're that they're that effective. Thank it was man. lovely to hear from you, um, Hillary. Yes. I really appreciated that. Thank you, Hillary, and from Amanda Boland via Instagram. Amanda said thanks to Anna from the Op Shop for recommending Funny Women. Absolutely loved it. So that was when we had, of course, the wonderful Anna from the Op Shop on the show in your absence last oh, week, Karen. Oh, can I, can I thank you, Corrie, for um, Hello Beautiful, which you gave me to read on the plane and you reviewed um, a few weeks ago. That is just yes. a fabulous book and it very much of the Anne Tyler sort of genre, I thought, mm. but mm. a bit different, a, a, a very sad story in many ways. But, oh, I just loved it. And how amazing that the two of the main characters were called Caroline and William, brother and sister. And there's another character called Rose and the other main character is Julia. It's like it's like reading about my whole family. Anyway, thank you. That um, was absolutely Carol, brilliant. Well, I, you're, you're there in Santa Margarita. I'm sitting in uh, a very small hotel, which you will all be joining me here soon, on the southern bank of the Arno River in Florence. And um, I'm in Italy for uh, a few weeks and everybody is, is sort of, if you're going, if you're going all that way across across the world, why are you only going to one country? And I just have to say that in an interview that Sarah Winman did um, a little while ago, uh, Caro, she said, still life is partly set in Italy and I was fortunate to spend time there when writing. It is hard to be in that country and not to soften. It is a country for the soul. And isn't that absolutely um, perfect? And we could, you and I could talk about what we've seen so far, even though I've only been here three days, but we could, and I, and I do want to hear about your trip along the way, particularly Spain and so on. But when we were chatting the other night about a wonderful way into travel, if you if you have seen museums or you have been to all the big numbers like the Vatican or here um, here in um, in Florence, the Uffizi, sometimes a nice thing to do a little bit off piste is to go and see a museum that was once someone's home. Yeah, well, the, the it came to me after um, the after a few days in Amsterdam, and of course I spoke to you. Um, earlier this year about the Six Collection and the Six Family and that beautiful big old Grand Canal house on the canal in Amsterdam. Oh, there's Rembrandt's in there and it's just one of the most beautiful places and to see how generations of this Six Family lived is wonderful. They're, they've given their house over to the local, to the state or the council or whatever it is over there and so it's free but you have to book. And then, of course, Anne Frank's house is one of the great tourist attractions, as sad as it is, a fascinating deep dive really into what went on back when people were hiding hiding from the Germans. Um, it, that's just, it's a very sad place to visit, but a great place to visit. But a few weeks ago um, on our first family holiday, as in me, Brendan, and our three children, which we haven't done for oh, probably at least five years, 
we went to um, northern Spain and we visited Dali's house in Port Legat, Salvador Dali's house. Corrie, you have to go there. It is just wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's uh, look, it, it sounds great. It, it just, you're, I mean, t- take us through. I've heard this, Potties, but I could listen again. So take us through where it is and what the feel of the of the place is. Well, it's sort of two about two hours. Um, we stayed in a village two, two and a half hours, little town north of Barcelona just before the French border. And Port Legat is just literally Dali's house and this fabulous old um, shipping container where they feed you beautiful sardines and calamari, sort of a short walk along the beach next door. And that's it. And there's a hotel. And... Um, Salvador Dali and his wife found this place and it was it was one they lived in this tiny hut Corrie probably about the size of your room in Florence <laughs> no kidding <laughs> and as he became more successful he just kept building rooms and rooms and rooms and they created this haven over a bay where they did all sorts of crazy things and famous people visited and of course he lived in apartments in New York and Paris as he became more celebrated, but he always came back to Port Legat. His wife was, I think, 10 or 12 years older than him. It's it, their bedroom. He set up a mirror from his position on this incredible bed where he could see from where when he woke up every morning the sunrise. And because I think it's um, it was the furthest point on that coastline of Spain, he always said he was the first Spaniard to see the sunrise every day. Oh, and, how fantastic. Oh, he, this pool, Corrie, this crazy pool, I can one word to describe it would be phallic, but um, it, it's just absolutely beautiful and some of the crazy art that he did. The last painting he was working on before he left Port Legat, because when his wife, who was older than him, died, he left that day and went and lived in her, I think, family chateau or castle nearby and he never went back. It's a very sad story and he lived for quite a few more years. But I, it, it, it's not very expensive. You you they take you through these tiny rooms in groups of eight. And, yeah, look, it, it's just wonderful. So, um, And, of course, you and I went to Barbara Hepworth's Sculpture Garden in Cornwall in St Ives and saw the way she lived. And last year I went back for the second time to Doris Duke's amazing, the heiress Doris Duke's house in Honolulu where she basically collected half of Byzantine Europe and the Middle East and tile, oh, that's one of the more beautiful houses of the world. So you've probably got a couple too, do you? Well, I, I am hoping we're a little bit footloose and fancy-free on this trip, and I'm hoping that we might just catch a train to Venice one day and um, you know where I always end up. I always end up at the Peggy Guggenheim Museum oh, right right on the Grand Canal. That's a beautiful place. If I, yep. if, I go, if I go there, Caro, that will be, I think it's my fifth time possibly my sixth, but I think it's my fifth time it will be. I'm just uh, I'm just in awe of this wonderful place. It's such a beautiful um, it was it's such a beautiful and extraordinary uh, museum. It's so it, it just absolutely uh, permeates uh, the collector of art who was Peggy Guggenheim herself. And it has in fact one of the world's most important collection of early 20th century art. And it's called the Palazzo Venere de Leone, and as I said, it's on the Grand Canal in the Dorsa Duro area. It, date, it dates back to the 18th century, Caro, and I don't know whether you realised, but the architect originally, I think his name was Boschetti, I think that's how you pronounce it, it was supposed to have five storeys, so it was supposed to be one of those um, smaller um, 
smaller homes, the smaller palazzos on that Grand Canal. But I'm not sure what happened. I think the original owner ran out of money. And that's why it's only one level. Hasn't it always struck you as rather interesting, the way it's only one level? And oh, Peggy extraordinary. Bought, and Peggy bought it in 1949 and, and acquired the garden next to it and, and did the most beautiful garden. She died in 1979 and a year later, the collection opened as part of the whole kind of Solomon Guggenheim Foundation um, and as part of her, you know, the greater Guggenheim family. And now it's all part of that museum structure. But uh, one of the things I love about it is the garden, in fact, and, of course, Peggy's ashes are interned there and so too are the ashes of her 14 dogs who she had throughout um, her from 1949 to 1979 all 14 are buried there and named because she of course absolutely adored them and um and look i i just think it's a it's a really fantastic experience for anybody who is interested or even not even if you don't know anything about early 20th century art the collection rotates regularly they have obviously curators and and there are themes and exhibitions but the collection itself includes oh my god where do you begin caro salvador dali as you mentioned there are some there william de koenig um francis bacon there's george brack mark chagall I mean, it just goes on. Barbara Hepworth, you mentioned her. She's, there's some of her pottery pieces there. Mark Rothko, even Yoko Ono, um, uh, Peggy and, and the Foundation acquired works of Yoko's. Jackson Pollock. It's just the most fabulous place. But it, it, it's it's all throughout her what was originally her living room, her bedrooms, um, guest wings, and now, of course, you just stroll through this beautiful um, little palazzo. Well, I, I agree with you. I went to Venice, I think, three times, and every time I went there it was closed or something. I finally went back there with the kids and Brendan. We made a special trip when we were um, over in uh, Tuscany for my mother's 70th. Mum organised a house. It was our big family trip, and I was blown away by it. And Rose brought this fabulous poster there and um, left it on the train on the way back to Tuscany. And we've always been sad about, always been sad oh. about that. The other, the other thing about Dali's house, speaking of, he had this sort of, they both had these beautiful private rooms where they hid away and he had this dressing room. He also had these studios there, another studio, and he actually wanted to paint sitting down. So he's created this sort of pulley thing that goes up and down and he could pull paintings up and down from the first to the second floor. But anyway, you go into his dressing room and it's papered with, photographs of Dali and all these other people who he met over the years. And there's, you know, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, there's Anna Magnani, there's, um, oh, there, there is so many famous, it, it's absolutely extraordinary, several of Laurence Olivier. Uh, it's just so, oh, it's really, really interesting. And um, I've got a few on my wish list. I mean, I have been to those beautiful um, houses in um, Newport, Rhode Island, the sort of antebellum houses, Marble House, where Alva um, Vanderbilt lived. And I also have to mention Giverny, which is obviously Monet's house, which I think is one of the world's great tourist attractions. But I've always wanted to go to Frank Lloyd Wright's house. Is it Falling Water? Yeah, it, that's right. In, just out of Chicago, wouldn't Ah, oh, that would be Apparently it's a bugger to get to, but... It would be absolutely wonderful. A lot of these homes are pretty accessible. You know, you mentioned Giverny. That's only about, what, a 40-minute train ride from Paris. 
the Peggy Guggenheim, I mean, Venice is so accessible. People who are travelling through northern Italy, never be afraid to just get on a train and go because it's a fabulous day and, oh, I just think you get back on that train, don't you, to go back to wherever you've come from, full of ideas and beauty and it just there's nothing quite like Venice. And just another quick one, Caro, for potties who might be going to London, if they haven't discovered the home of Sir John Soane, S-O-A-N-E, and it's not far from the British Museum, you'll remember, Caro, after we did the Cornwall Walk and we said goodbye to you in London, Anna from the op shop, Anna Barry and her husband Chris and myself had a day together in London and we went to the Sir John Soane house. Entry is free and there are volunteers who take you every 30 minutes and the tour is about 30 minutes. They take a tour. It's really intimate and lovely and this is a home, Sir John Soane, died in 1837. He was an architect and he did a lot of the famous buildings of Regency London. And his home uh, has been left absolutely as it was at the time of he and his wife Eliza lived there. And it's just an extraordinary, he was a collector as well as a great architect. So it's an extraordinary collection of curios, sculpture, models, drawing, furniture, drawings. Have you been there? No, I haven't. I've been to the old Wallace collection years ago, but I don't think I've ever been to Sir John Soane's house, no. Well, Sir John Soane, yeah, Sir John Soane, S-O-A-N-E Museum, and it's in Lincoln's Inn Field in London. As I said, not far from the British Museum. It's a really good GLT for anybody going to London. Caro, I was uh, thinking last night about how many trips you've been because you've, you've had family living overseas in recent years and and just the, the sort of the travel data you collect if you travel regularly. And I think most Aussies are pretty good travellers and we all have our own tips and things. But it never fails to surprise me how on a new trip you'll come up with a new tip, <laughs> with a new thing, and you just go, oh, my God, why, why haven't I been doing that for the last 40 years of travel? Um, and I, I'll give you a couple of mine. I don't know whether you have any. One is um, taking magnesium. You know, it, it, being squashed up in a in a seat for essentially 24 or 28 hours, however long it takes you to get to Europe, is is just not great on your body. And you, if you're not moving a lot, you can feel a bit stiff and heavy for the first couple of days that you come off the flight. Take magnesium, everyone. Just pound it. <laughs> you actually, you made us do that on the Cornish Walk. We lived on that bloody magnesium for well, a week. And we never well, got any Cara, aches and I, pains now I think about no, it. I know. And I and I didn't think much about I, I mean, I take it occasionally at home. But um, I just threw it in. At the last minute, I threw it into uh, into the luggage. And the first night I was there with you and Trudes, I took one because I was feeling very stiff and I felt a bit stiff the next day. Honestly, it is the best tip. And the other tip is if you can – immediately go on to the time of your destination. So, you know, I caught the dreaded 5 a.m. flight out of Tullamarine, which doesn't offer you much sleep the night before because you've got to be at the airport at about 2.30. And I immediately went on to Italian time. So I went uh, straight to sleep because it was nighttime in Italy. And then I kind of, after Dubai, went through the day and met you and Trudy for dinner. We went through the night. And I reckon that's just a really good tip. I agree. Sometimes it hits me jet lag. Sometimes it doesn't. I don't know. But um, my, 
the, my two tips would be avoid coffee in the first couple of days and um, a good book. If you've got a book with you, you can get through anything. Oh, so true, so true. Caro, uh, I think on this note, not that we haven't been drinking initially, but I think it's time, although it's um, very early here in, here in Florence, I think we should have a drink. Let's bring in the cocktail cabinet. Caro, cocktail cabinet time, and I thought, seeing as we're on holiday, and indeed a lot of potties will be having holidays over the next couple of months just escaping bad weather, isn't it lovely? Yeah, like this is the, about the first thing that struck me about being on holiday, is having that kind of late afternoon, that five or six o'clock drink, and you don't have to cook dinner, you don't have to race back from the shops, you're not thinking, gosh, after dinner I've got to do some more work, you're just chilled completely and utterly. And I think it's such a beautiful time of the evening and of your holiday to just settle and just even sit somewhere, whether it's a little um, piazza or whether it's a taverna somewhere or whether you're on a beach uh, or in a beautiful garden somewhere, just have a beautiful drink. Yes, well, and I have done that during the trip. <laughs> a few times. Um, well, a, a few tips. When you're travelling with a lot of people, I just think, and 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 you go to lunch and um, have wine with lunch. Don't you know? Don't order bottles. And um, Tanya and all our gang in Greece were very good on this. You just order a litre of wine and white wine with a lot of ice on a hot day. One or two glasses, absolutely fabulous. You don't need to be too much of a wine toff. I've also had some lovely Italian and Spanish wines, but I've rediscovered Corrie in the last couple of days and I re- remembered it yesterday when we went to, you know, that beautiful little bar in Santa Margarita where you walk, walk up the stone hill towards um, the villa and the big church. Anyway, um, the Limoncello Spritz, which I think I told you about, it, it, it was called um, an Amalfi Spritz when I was visiting yeah. um I was sort of south of the Amalfi Coast last year. I've been very lucky with travel. I do realise that. And um, it's basically limoncello and prosecco and soda with a lot of ice. It is the most beautiful drink, not too much limoncello. And we noticed also in Como at our little Lido down um, in um, Fagetto Lario, there was um, a lot of people drinking a, a sort of white wine with peaches in it. Whole, uh, oh, beautiful! So, so like, so like a Bellini, but but they're actually rather than um, crushing the peaches, they're putting the peaches in there. Yeah, whole peaches, but um, wine, not sparkling wine. And um, in fact, Clem made um, Bellinis um, when we were in Spain for my birthday. We had um, cocktails, which were absolutely beautiful. And um, yeah, that, look, they do. You know, the cocktails here are fabulous. And I've got to say, at most places incredibly reasonable and cheaper than you pay at cocktail bars in Melbourne, despite the fabulous views. But that didn't happen when you decided to take me and Trude's for a gin and tonic the other day, did it? No, it didn't. So, uh, look. Which we were expecting. (laughs) The Villa Deste, I got overexcited, what can I say? But the Villa Deste is just one of the most beautiful hotels in the world. And I will never afford to be able to stay there, Caro. Possibly you won't either in our lifetime, but you can, if you take a second mortgage on your house, 
you can have a drink there. So what we decided to do was to have the full hour sitting there at the outdoor bar, make the most of it, and suck it up and say, okay, we are paying for the view via the gin and tonic. So the gin, the lovely um, waiter bought us uh, a gin and tonic. We sat, at, sat not at the restaurant part, if people know Villa Deste, but at the beach um, or pool part, which was really lovely because it's closer to the lake. The gorgeous gardens were behind us <clears throat> and we had a gin and tonic. The gin was pretty strong. Um but that was yeah, they fun. certainly didn't hold back on the gin. It might have been it expensive, was a good, but it was a good pour. We had fever tree, uh, little bottles of fever tree, so that kept us sensible. But I tell you what, Caro, it will go down as one of the drinks and the gin and tonics that you and I and Trudy will remember for a lifetime. And I think that's what you do sometimes. You just say, you know what, this is too special. We're not just going to walk through this hotel, look at the gardens and walk out again. Let's just absorb it. Let's look at the lake. Let's just have a beautiful sit for a minute. Yeah, let's have a gin and tonic that's worth uh, 20 bucks or $25. <laughs> I think I think that's been conservative. And I'm looking forward to talking um, about some of the Italian wines I've seen with Miles when we see him again from Prince Wine Store. But I, did, I, I do agree that there's no more enjoyable hour than at the end of a long day's walking, maybe swimming, but generally walking. And that's what we've been doing in the last few days and touring to sit down somewhere. And the other, the other one, of course, has been for me a nice cold beer. And they do some great non-alcoholic beers now. And the, I think it's Heineken do this thing double zero or triple zero. It is absolutely fabulous. And that's pretty good after a big day's walking as well. Well, look, well, we've got lots to talk about, but potties, don't forget Prince Wine Store being one of the wonderful sponsors of our podcast. They are open for business 24 hours a day via their website, princewinestore.com.au, or you can whiz down to South to their South Melbourne, their beautiful South Melbourne showroom and visit Miles, Gab and the gang and just say Corrie and Cara sent you. And if you do go on to the website and you, at the checkout point, just put in M-E-S-S, which is the code, the podcast code, and you will receive the listener discount. Carol, it's time now for BSF Books, Screen and Food, brought to us each week by Red Energy such a great energy company. We love them. Caro and I have signed up and we hope many of our potties are as well. Caro, uh, you kick it off because I know you've been reading. I did actually have a great one for the plan, but I'll save that for next time. Tell us what you've been reading. My recommendation is my worst thing normally, Corrie. You know my view about Booker Prize winners. They're generally a novel by a great writer, but it's never, in my view, that writer's best book. But this book I absolutely loved. It's by Bernadine Evaristo and it's called Girl, Woman, Other. I'd heard about it. I was reluctant to read it. She actually shared the Booker Prize a few years ago with Margaret Atwood for the Testaments. Yes. And um, it was a tie, which would have been quite controversial, I imagine. But anyway, um, I started reading it and this is basically a book without a, a um, traditional structure. For example, in my memory, I don't think there are any full stops or capital letters except for proper nouns. So there are no real sentences. It is that, and that's correct, and, and that's correct, and that was very controversial by, by some in the you know literary um, hierarchy of London when when she was named. 
look, it's it's a wandering narrative, mainly told in the third person. As I said, there are sort of there are twelve characters, and it it runs over it runs over a century, really, certainly many decades. It's basically about the modern UK and what the United Kingdom now really is. Um, many of the characters are black, many are gay. One is well, non-gender specific, and you start reading it and you think, and, and the first character and the character that weaves her way all through the novel is Amma. He is an, a, he was a struggling black actress for many years in London. She realises um, early on in her life that she's gay. Um, she then becomes a theatre director and for years and years runs this theatre company that sort of struggles with her partner, with her a friend who I think he had a relationship once that becomes her business partner. The friend goes off to America and that is a story in itself. But um, he, he has written a play that has been picked up by one of the main theatres on um, or the, the new, um, the one on the other side of the Thames anyway. He's got a big play opening and it's every, it, it, the basic novel is set around who's going to this play, the character's who are involved in the play, her daughter, a daughter who she has um, with a, a gay friend who's become a, a very prominent academic. And um, Jazz, the daughter, is another great character too. But I started the first chapter and I thought, oh, this is, you know, this is, it, it's a bit feminist, a bit me too, whatever, whatever. It absolutely gets you in and you fall in love with some of these characters and it actually made me cry at the end. It comes a full circle. I really recommend this novel. Don't worry about the first 20 or 30 pages and about the structure. You completely get into it. And it is a beautiful book. I highly recommend Girl with Another. Just just go with it, Caro. Do you know? Sorry, I'm just I'm I'm clapping because I'm trying to kill a mosquito, which probably is really um mean to say this to. Melburnians who are going through one of the coldest Junes ever. But there is a mosquito that has been in my bedroom and I think I've just squashed it. E Carol, even the mosquitoes have a different sound here in Italy. They're so... Well, um... there are many different breeds of mosquito, Corrie, as we know. <laughs> just be careful. <laughs> be careful. I've gone over my notes. I think I mentioned it but didn't review it back in February. And this film, you're going to talk about the Sigourney Weaver film, aren't you? Yeah, well, let's both chat about it because you've seen it. I couldn't recall the synopsis. I know you often say you never listen to things that I describe <laughs> because sometimes I think I talked I, about I, the fact that Sigourney Weaver and Kevin Klein, who all those years ago made the big chill, have got the ice, that, they the were ice, both no, the the ice storm. The no, ice no, storm, Sigourney, sorry. Sigourney, Sigourney wasn't in the big show, but the, but they were in the Ice Storm together, which, which I is still a great think is one of the most fantastic films. But yeah, so this is called The Good House, Caro, and it's based on a novel by Anne Leary, who's an American writer, a bit of the Anne Tyler um, uh, vein, that sort of kind of domestic, um, upper middle class American waspy kind of background sort of thing. And uh, Sigourney Weaver plays a rather interesting and complicated character called Hildy Good. And Hildy has been living in the beautiful little village of Wendover. It's a New England town, uh, not far from Boston. Kind of think um, your Bowen Heads or your Sorrento Portsy sort of thing. And she's lived there pretty much all her life. And 
like so many Americans, grew up and went away to college but has come back to her family um, area and she's reared a couple of kids and a couple of daughters and her former husband, their marriage broke up when he announced a a couple of years before this movie begins, he announced that he was gay, so the marriage broke up, but they're still very good friends. Sigourney is a complicated character. She's a real estate agent. Her business is a little bit on the slide, and when viewers are first introduced to her, we can't kind of work out why because she's pretty dynamic. She knows everybody. She knows all the owners of the big properties, um, we just can't work out why. And, and there are two reasons as it unfolds. Firstly, her former business associate went out on her own, started up her own rival real estate firm and is clearly uh, getting the good listings. But secondly, and this is the most interesting part, we discover that Hildy has a demon and the demon is alcohol. And that's where things really become interesting. Um, Kevin Klein plays yep. Frank Kevin Klein plays Frank, who was Sigourney's, as a young girl, her first love. And then, of course, Sigourney went off to college. Frank stayed in Wendover and Sigourney Sigourney met her husband at college. The rest was history there. But now that they are um, no longer together, Sigourney has Frank as a good friend and we hope as the movie unfolds that she and Frank again are going to end up together again. I'm not going to give anything away there, whether that works out or not. But isn't it interesting, Caro, to watch to watch a movie that you think is going to be on one kind of feel-good trajectory and possibly even be a bit of a comedy, a bit like the setting and the feel of it reminded me of that um, Meryl Streep and um, uh, Steve Martin movie where – Remember when Meryl's married to Alec Baldwin and they, or was married, but they reconnect again? I can't remember the name of the film. Yeah, something but, like, not not Here We Go Again or something. But yeah, yeah, something it, like that. Yeah, something like that. And um, and it's got that same kind of feel and you think the movie's going in that direction. But then what happens is that this demon drink, Sigourney um, faces an intervention with her family. They say, you've got to get off the booze. She doesn't think that she's an alcoholic. She feels that she's a social drinker, but then we notice that she's having one, two, three, four glasses of red wine a night and then maybe even a fifth and then maybe she opens a second bottle. Isn't it interesting the way they, um, the way that story unfolds? I think the scene, the family intervention scene is fascinating because you don't know at that point she's an alcoholic and they all, you know, the, the scene where the, the kids and the ex-husband relate to her, things she's been doing and what she's done, and you realise Hilda's problem is actually very, very serious. And then the movie takes a couple of really dark turns. There's um, a, Well, there are a couple of um, extracurricular characters, aren't there, who end up together, and that's a, a different story again, who have a relationship. I mean, there's, there's a lot going on in this film, and the rivalry with the other real estate agent, um, the, the friend she makes with the younger woman, and and then you know something absolutely terrible happens, and we I won't go through it. But I thought her performance. I also thought that you know the other star of the film is actually the town it's filmed in. It's the most beautiful seaside town, and um, some of the scenes you know are just absolutely stunning. But some of them are absolutely devastating. And that stash of 
Pinot, that dozen bottles of Pinot, you know, she keeps down in the shed. Oh my! <laughs> that she just cracks into every now. Oh, it's it's pretty. It's actually a really good film about alcoholism, but a really good film about family. No, I really enjoyed it. It was obviously one of those films made in COVID that sort of disappeared. Yeah, exactly. Isn't it funny? Because you're absolutely right. I think um, when I was reading the notes on it in the plane, I think it said uh, 2021. So you're right. It was right in the thick of it and and released then. And, of course, none of us were going to the, to the cinema. So that's The Good House with Sigourney Weaver and Kevin Klein. Carol and I really recommend it. Now, you have a recipe. I can't believe you've been cooking on your travels. So where is this recipe from, please? Corrie, um, I haven't been cooking on my travels. <laughs> I've been eating other people's food on my travels and I spent a bit of time. Oh, by the way, the Admiral Street movie was It's Complicated. Oh, that's right. Yes, it's yeah. complicated. Yeah, again, and that local market and her, she she's not a realtor. She does up houses, doesn't she? She's an architect. Uh, no, she's a cook. She has, no, she's a cook. She's a baker. She has that beautiful that's patisserie. Right. That's right. Which we but all want to go to. And they're, they're doing a renovation. Oh, that, it's a really funny film. Alec Baldwin's very funny. So one of the things I have eaten is moussaka because I've been in Greece and I've been eating a lot of, um, well, a lot of spinach and cheese pastries, to be honest, Corey, because they're so beautiful. And every bakery has them and they get, even the ones you buy, at, you know, on the side of a road and at petrol stations are pretty incredible. We had a bit of an incident on our way from Athens up to the Ionian Islands when um, we got a flat tyre. So we spent a bit of time at a petrol station and a bit of time eating Greek um, beautiful Spanakopita. But my friend Tanya Hey, hey said, sister, when you get to Florence, we're walking, baby. We're getting those pastries off those hips. <laughs> I, 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 I have done a lot of walking, as you, you would, a lot of hiking too, actually, village to village. And I'll be doing more with you, but Corrie, Tanya has kindly given me what she believes is the best recipe she has found for moussaka. Now, it's described in this recipe as Greek beef and eggplant lasagna, which, of course, it's 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 the Greek – it, it's sort of a lasagna style of dish. The difference is it's lighter, and it's lighter because it doesn't have the pasta layer, and what makes up for the pasta is eggplant. So I won't take you through the whole recipe – but Miss Jane, she's put it up on our show notes, Corrie. There are three different stages to this. There's the eggplant stage, the filling, which is basically a form of bolognese, which it's, it's a little bit richer, and then the bechamel sauce, which is definitely richer and involves an egg and an egg yolk, and you top it with a third of a cup of panko breadcrumbs. Now, there's a lot of stock in this recipe, um, you need, a, obviously, butter, flour and milk and nutmeg and parmesan cheese. There is a, a Greek cheese that um, this recipe prefers, but if you can't get that, use parmesan. And the um, the filling, which involves, she recommends beef or lamb mince, but beef is traditional. Oh, there's red wine, there's crushed tomatoes, there's beef stock, there's tomato paste, bay leaves, oregano, cinnamon. And then the eggplant, you don't fry the eggplant, you bake it in the oven. And you start with a layer of eggplant, then the meat filling, then another layer of eggplant, and then the bechamel, and then the breadcrumbs. Tanya served one form of this when we were in Greece. It was so beautiful, and believe it or not, we ate it in the heat of a European summer, but 
your most people listening to this will be in the throes of winter, and I highly recommend the Tin Eats recipe for moussaka. So that was BSF Corey for Red Energy. Please support the energy company that supports our podcast. Voted three years in a row the best energy provider by CanStar. Isn't a time you called Red Energy? And over to you, Corey. Well, Caro, it's over to you because you're grumpy. It's pretty hard to find things to be grumpy about at the moment. My life is going particularly well. I'm feeling very, very fortunate. But, Corrie, I'm taking a leaf out of your book today. It's a, it's a, it's a road grumpy, a car grumpy, and um, not um, the driving incident you think I'm going to mention, but just the fact that <laughs> I, for years, have felt that Melbourne drivers were the worst drivers in the world. And I have marvelled about how people have driven through narrow roads and hills and villages of Italy and Spain and many, many parts of Europe on what we feel is the wrong side of the road and done it brilliantly. But I've found um, another another form of driver who is not very pleasant, and that is the impatient Italian drive, impatient Italian driver. What is wrong with going 30 k's around a mountain when that is the speed limit? Can you believe the people who were take it, tailgating me over the last few days and tooting and overtaking at the most treacherous turns known to modern man? I was just absolutely horrified. And I don't understand why there is a need to tailgate in such a dangerous part of the road. What is wrong with And so Melbourne drivers, overall, I apologise because, you know, Europeans come to Melbourne, particularly English people, and they say we're the grumpiest, most impatient drivers in the world. Trust me, we're not. Caro, if uh, your granddaughter Sunday or one of my grandchildren had been in the back seat of the car, they would have, as my grandchildren do now, they parrot me because, as you know, my language isn't great when I'm driving. (laughs) (laughs) There was a, there was a lot of swearing in the car the other day. Just saying. Well, I just don't like people tooting. That's all. I think tootings are really. And in fact, there were signs, and there was a sign um going round one corner, one particularly treacherous corner, and it was a sign with a like a trumpet and a cross through it. And I said to Trudy, "Is um." is music um, bad in this area? And she said, no. They're saying, they're saying don't toot your horn. <laughs> they're, not, they're, not obeying, they're not obeying their own road rules. That's all I can say. Now, um, Corrie, do you want me to kick off um, six quick questions? Uh, no, I will because I'm going to finish up with. Um, I'm oh, you, you've got with, the amazing uh, fact. The fact. You do. I have the amazing fact. So my uh, everybody, we are flying blind today. We don't have any show notes. I think we're doing pretty well. And just on the subject of doing pretty well, I have to say, Carol, your driving in Italy has been fantastic. Just absolutely super. You were born to drive on the other side of the road. Now. Um, my question to you is, what's been your main cultural highlight thus far? Oh, well, look, I talked about it earlier this year, Corrie, but I finally, um, I've already mentioned um, Dali's house, but I finally um, got to the Vermeer exhibition in Amsterdam two or three days before it closed. There are some beautiful works of art there. The way he painted women, the way he painted women and men, but particularly women of all classes, 
was just extraordinary. His use of light is amazing. It was at the Rijksmuseum. It was pretty crowded and it was, although it's been hailed as one of the great art exhibitions that's ever been shown in the in the history of art exhibitions, and certainly the biggest Vermeer exhibition. He only he painted 38 attributed works he painted, and 28 of them were on show at the Rijksmuseum. It was so it wasn't big. It didn't take a long time to go through it, and there were a lot of people there, which was a bit of a downside. But because you know, as you know, I went to. Um, the Hague at the height of COVID and I was, we, Brendan and I were alone in a room looking at Girl with a Pearl Earring. There was no one there because only one or two people were allowed in at a time and not many people were travelling. But um, it was a beautiful exhibition and um, now it's over. Um, Amsterdam has launched, well, it, it, it actually launched back in May. There's a new Van Gogh exhibition on at the Van Gogh Museum and I'm just going to pop into that on my way home back to Australia next week. So, Pretty excited. So um, back at you, what was your cultural highlight so far? <laughs> well, I've only been here a couple of days and um, one of those days we spent a fair bit of time shopping. <laughs> so, uh, but I think today That was my first big so- shop in Lake Como. Boy, we, did, we had fun, didn't we? Well, Como is a beautiful uh, little tiny Italian city and... There are just department stores. There are tiny little boutiques. There are little art shops. It is just a great place to explore. And we had a lovely time. I was walking off my jet lag. But um, so, Carol, I've got a big couple of days ahead of me. I'm saving some of the the big numbers for when you girls arrive. But I am going to the Uffizi this afternoon on my own. And um, But I know that with the gang we've got the Bargello Museum, we're hoping to get to the Gucci Museum. We've got all sorts of things planned. But I have to say that my cultural highlight so far was actually at Como the other day visiting the Cattedrale di Santa Maria Assunta, which is the Cathedral um, of Santa Maria. And it is in, or it's, it's also known as the Duomo, in uh, right in the heart of Como, which is this beautiful Italian city um, at the very bottom of Lake Como and um, well, one of the legs actually because if you look at the map it's kind of like a pair of legs and so this is on the left the bottom left hand leg where the toes would be and so it's got, it has a beautiful streets the lake is there in the distance and Caro this um, I was really interested to read this the other day when, when you Trudes and I were walking around this beautiful um, this beautiful church that work started on it in 1396 and it wasn't completed. Over three and a half centuries, uh, different architects and artisans contributed to it. It wasn't completed until 1744. So it's it's had it was a long time coming, but gosh, isn't it such a beautiful church? And the the filigree work, the collection of tapestries, the stonework, the sculptures. The um, stone altars—it uh, just—it just takes my my breath away. And I, every time I'm in that part of Italy, I really try to get to Como and visit that beautiful church. No, great, um, great highlight. I can I just throw in the Giardini di Villa Melzi, which um, are those beautiful gardens at the edge of Bellagio, which Trudes and I wandered through the day before you arrived. That. that and the orangery are just so beautiful. And um, I sent a photo to Rose. She said it looked fake. I actually managed to match my dress with um, the pale blue shutters of the villa. 
pretty impressive, Corrie. But no, I that, think we. Was... I think we'll have to. I think we'll have to post that photo on our "Don't Shoot the Messenger," Caro. So my question to you is: What fashion trend or trends have you noticed in this summer, the European summer of 2023? A lot of white with navy blue print. It's everywhere. It's and it's so beautiful. White dresses, white big bag, flared pants, silk pants with navy blue flowers. They're navy blue um, uh, paisley, or almost. Um, there's so many different versions of navy blue and white all through Italy and Spain. And the other one is those beautiful big skirts with a sort of a quite a thick waistband. Uh, you noticed them too in a shop we looked at in Como the other day and they were um, certainly in northern Spain, on the coast of Spain, and then just big sort of not A-line but sort of come almost boxy and almost down to the ankle with a tiny top or T-shirt. They're everywhere mm. as well and it's been absolutely – a lot of cowboy boots in Santa Margarita too on the girls, short skirts and shorts and cowboy boots. What about you? Uh, well, I won't be rocking the cowboy boots and shorts, I'll tell you that right now, but the fashion trends that I noticed, I did a big sweep last night. Um, uh, I got in here probably uh, about 3.30, I guess, and just regrouped. It is so hot in, in Florence. So having walked from the station, I had to have a shower and stuff. So I went for my passeggiata. All the shops were open. So, of course, I just went from shop to shop looking. And I'll say it was in the interest of research for this podcast, Caro, but it was actually because I was trying to find a pair of bathers. But um, I definitely <laughs> noticed this 60s-inspired flower print there are flower prints everywhere and there's a lot of the black and white flower print a la Mary Quant, I guess, of the 70s, 60s and 70s. And um, and bright green, really bright green, uh, not like, a, like there's a lot of sage green and that beautiful green that you wear so well, but it's actually the colour of lime cooler cordial, which I was never allowed to have at home, but that it's just that kind of bright uh, darker bright green is everywhere. I think it's a hard colour for a lot of women to wear, but that's interesting. Um, Trude's mentioned red, and I agree with her. There's lots of red everywhere. And then the wide, sloppy, slouchy pant, um, almost like a man-style pant, in linen with a little white T-shirt or a black T-shirt or a singlet uh, or a white shirt. I've seen a, a few girls with a white shirt with these big white pants, but they've um, tied the white shirt around their waist. That look is everywhere. In fact, I might even just get a little pair of um, of those kind of slouchy pants. They look fantastic. It's a great look. Oh, it might just snap up some of those. We we actually had dinner last night and this we were going to go and um, sit on the harbour and then we found this wine bar I'd been to years ago that I'd absolutely loved. And every time you ask for a table, if someone asks for a table at this joint, in one of those beautiful side streets of Santa Margarita, they just brought out another brought out another table. <laughs> so for people they just they ended up <laughs> taking over the whole street. And we sat out there and had the most beautiful bowls and pasta. And I had a very nice glass or two of white wine and just watched people walk by. It was the most entertaining couple of hours. And of course, you're always checking out the women more than the men because they've got such beautiful clothes. And you're right, the printed dresses, a lot of linen and a lot of colour and some of the prettiest sun frocks 
I've ever seen. Oh, it's just it's it 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 really is um like watching a passing parade of um of beautiful art. So well, um, I, I was just, I was I just think- think, I was just thinking um thinking yesterday as I was walking around. It's like um, particularly in northern Italy because you know they were struck so badly with COVID. They lost so many, and particularly their older population here. But it's like. It's like northern Italy has just burst forth like a flower garden out of out of COVID, out of the last couple of years. And there is just colour and beautiful design and fashion everywhere. It's just, it's so uplifting. It's so fantastic. There's another reason for that. May was an absolute floodplain in Italy and many parts of Europe. There's been so much rain. So everything's, and now the rain's ended and there's so much green. It's, the gardens are absolutely beautiful. But anyway, oh, go ahead. Just, Sorry. Every, everything is blossoming, even the women's fashion. So I'm going to bring you back to earth now, Caro, and just ask you one football-related uh, question because you'll be getting back into it in a, in, in a week or so, as we know. Should Gillan McLaughlin's wage be made public? Of course it should. Of course it should. It was an extraordinary move by the chairman, Richard Goida, when Gillan McLaughlin replaced Andrew Demetriou, that he decided that in the annual report he wasn't going to um, – he said it was his idea, not Gillen's. He wasn't going to make it public. And so basically now in the um, – after every AGM, the AFL lists its executive salaries, but only in total. So everybody knew that Andrew Demetrio was earning over $3 million by the time he finished up as um, CEO of the AFL. And, of course, there were bonuses tied to that, you know, tied to TV ratings and crowds, et cetera. Um, but Gillan McLaughlin's isn't. And given that he's still there more than a year after he said he was going and, you know, doing a bit of travel, which is fair enough because he was on the way out and he planned travel. You know, he's been um, he's been over in Paris to be um, Guillaume's groomsman and I think he's got another trip planned in July. It just seems extraordinary. We don't know what Gillan McLaughlin is earning. And it's what's even more interesting, I think, is that Andrew Demetrio has come out and said that. So I don't know what game Andrew's playing, but he obviously thinks it's wrong. And given that the AFL is a non-for-profit, I don't see why we shouldn't know what the CEO earns. I don't understand the sensitivity. I think it's getting more and more like um, a private company, the AFL, and I think it's a really bad trend. Now, Corrie, you have an amazing fact. Well, I just thought I'd, I'd, I'd tell you a little bit about <coughs> Como because we were so busy walking, shopping, eating, drinking, we didn't think much about where we were. So Como, uh, in the 19th century Como, artefacts were discovered uh, in the in the hills of Como that date back to 4th century BC. So we certainly know that it has a long history. Uh, <clears throat> there are uh, remnants of Roman baths there under a car park, not the car park that we were, <laughs> that we were trying to park at, <laughs> but they have discovered um, Roman baths, so it was clearly a place to go um, during that time. And then in a, around 8th, 9th, 10th century, it became a centre for trade and uh, and quite, um, quite because it was sort of a link between northern Europe and um, and southern Italy. And it, it, it was it was flourishing. It was a city that was doing really, really well. And and it was completely destroyed in 1127 during the 10-year war with Milan. The whole city was destroyed because, as many observers of Italian history know, 
it wasn't really until the 19th century that Italy was unified. There were always provinces having fights and stashes all the time. At the start of the 1700s, the European aristocrats from all over Europe started the phenomenon known as the Grand, the Grand Tour. And, of course, Como, Lake Como and um, and Bellagio, as you mentioned earlier, became really popular spots for um, for, for mostly men, young men trying to search trying to search for knowledge, new beginnings, interest, um, cultivate themselves before they settled down and became whatever they became in in England and married. and um, and then later on in the 1900s it became more acceptable for young women to travel with uh, with their mothers or their parents or with a chaperone. Now, Lake Como, as I said earlier, it's the shape of an upside-down Y and Bellagio stands at the, at the point of the Y, which is why Bellagio is such a popular and beautiful spot. But you, as you discovered the other day, you, Trudy, and I, I took you over to Chernobyl. Um, I think you'd been there before, but Trudy hadn't. Um, we had a rather expensive gin and tonic at a rather expensive place there, but that was worth every cent of it. And Lalio, uh, you stayed further uh, further north on the other side. What was the name of the village where you stayed? Oh, last time I stayed at Argenio, and this time Argenio. not Molina. That's yeah. right, Argenio, yeah. So just on the lake, it is the deepest lake in Italy, one of the deepest in Europe. It's 410 metres deep, which is um, in old language 1,345 feet. Um, to give you an idea of that, Australia's um, biggest lake, uh, St Clair in Tasmania, is 200 metres deep. This one is 410. And it's um, it, it, the water changes colour. It is the deepest green. It's like a green that you'll never see, particularly on a sunny day. But it's um, it also has its own monster, Carol. I don't know whether you realise that, but there is supposed to be a I monster of the lake called Lario, interestingly first spotted and mentioned in 1946. I don't know why these monsters reared their ugly heads after World War II when people had started um, playing around with photographs. <laughs> And, and and photoshopping, <laughs> but anyway, it seems to be a coincidence. But it does have its own monster. So if anybody is thinking of touring to Italy at any time in the near or distant future, do make sure you fly in or train to Milan and then catch the train to Como, which is about 40 minutes north, basically like catching the train to Frankston, and you get out, you're in the mountain air, and the lake is beautiful. It is just a place I I love and I highly recommend. Couldn't agree more. And those evening swims, because um, we were in a little hilltop, it's sort of a hilltop town with an extraordinary view and a gorgeous little B&B. Um, but going down to our local Lido most evenings and having a swim in the lake, looking up at these incredible trees and the cocktail at the beach bar afterwards was fun as well. But um it was such a lovely way to end the day. And just swimming in fresh water, you just forget how different it is. Yeah, well, you do. And and it's always been known as a place of um, 
you know, for good health. It's just sort of a place, you know, like one of those kind of spa towns of Europe. People have always gone there. But um, I love it and um, highly recommend it. And we share all of that with love to potties. Um, we want you all to go. Caro, you've got a little bit more of a trip, um, but you'll be back in the studio. Uh, no, next week we're actually having off as well. So is Miss Jane. She's got school holidays. But we'll, you'll be back the week after with a special guest I'll be joining you from Sicily. I think I'll get on the line and we'll we'll do another podcast um, semi-remotely. Well, remote for me, not for you. What are you doing there? Are you swatting mosquitoes still? I, I know, I am. They're just, I know. Well, I can see, you see, they drove me mad all night and now I can see them all. So as I'm talking to you, I'm just hitting. Is that making a noise? I better stop. Uh, um, that was a great chat, Caro, and I look forward to seeing you in Florence in the next couple of days with Trudy and our other friends, Jane and Anna, who are joining us. So we're going to be a bit of a tribe. Cannot wait. And I'm doing a recce today. I'm actually going to go to the square that Sarah Winman writes about in Still Life. So I'll take photos. Uh, Miss Jane can pop them on the um, Don't Shoot Pod Instagram account so everybody can have a look at the travel pics. And, Caro, what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger. I think I've got the mosquito. (laughs) God, did I? Oh, the I've got, of course... Thanks for listening to this episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger. And if you'd like to support the podcast, tell a friend about the show. Perhaps they haven't discovered it yet. You can send us an email to feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook using the handle at don'tshootpod and sign up for our weekly email. We'll send you the show notes straight to your inbox. And of course, thanks to our show sponsors, Red Energy and Prince Wine Store.